I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to throw out some names for you. Mojo Jojo. No! I had no intention of committing any crimes today. Maleficent. And all the powers of hell! The Monarch. Are you kidding? It was like my best entrance ever! Dr. Facilier. Don't you disrespect me, little man. Marvin the Martian. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom! Even the peculiar purple pie man of Porcupine Peak. That's from Strawberry Shortcake. Listeners, I love villains. That scene at the beginning of Wreck-It Ralph where all of the video game villains are in group therapy. Now let's close out with the bad guy affirmation. I am bad. And that's good. I will never be good. And that's not bad. To me, that is one of the best scenes in all of cinema history. Part of the appeal for me is that villains give me a chance as a viewer to kind of indulge that part of my psyche that's tinged with darkness, but they do it in a way that's really fun and usually has tremendous style. And then, of course, you have your little spotted friends. Uh, Yes. Yes, I must say, such perfectly beautiful coats. But I wanted to find out what people who work in and study animation think about what actually makes a villain a villain. First, I spoke with animation historian and Emory University professor Eddie Von Mueller. Okay, let's parse this just a little bit. Are we talking about a good villain in an animated short, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, or are we talking like Ursula? Uh, first one, then the other. Okay. Um, A good villain in an animated short is really not the villain. A good villain in an animated short is more like the straight man in a two-man crosstalk act, right? The villains are there to unfold the hero's abilities. And you could look at a great, like, silent comedian like, say, a Charlie Chaplin, right? Charlie Chaplin, who's kind of a cartoon character. He's this little nimble guy. And so they paired him with, like, big bruiser guys, and he would just run circles around him. So villains in these shorts are never really scary. It's not like the Deliverance Hillbillies from Hillbilly Hair who who are forced to engage in non-consensual square dancing by, by another Bugs and Drag. I really don't think all the time about Bugs dressed as a girl. I, I sometimes think of other people dressed as girls. Um... <laughs> Um, they're not really villains because they don't really menace bugs. Death is completely banished from the world of Warner Brothers cartoons. Uh, the coyote can never eat the Roadrunner, but that's okay because the coyote can also be accordioned at the bottom of a cliff and be fine in the next shot. Which means that risk or peril, which is one of the things that the villain brings in, that idea doesn't really attach to the comedy shorts. And I, I think that, for example, um... I think Elmer Fudd is Bugs Bunny's greatest foe because of the visual contrast and he's such an idiot and Bugs is so smart 
Um, I love Pete Puma because I love that the voice mobile. I got a little rabbit in this hole. I'm going to catch him and eat him up. Um, so I think in the in the shorts, there aren't really villains. There are just victims because once you start messing with that boxing kangaroo who you think is a giant mouse, Sylvester, you're just going to get your clock cleaned. Tweety Pie. Is Tweety Pie the victim? I don't think so. I think Tweety Pie is just messing with that cat. I talked with Eddie before about how Elmer is no threat whatsoever to the fast-talking and wily Bugs Bunny. And that bears out, but Eddie had a very different take on villainy in long-form animation. This will just purely be me. When we talk about long-form animation, we're, we're actually looking at a couple of different genres that are executed through cartoons. The predominant genres are the musical. There are a great many things going on in The Lion King or Cinderella, but as long as people stop doing what they're doing and start singing, you're making a damn musical. I don't care what species you are. So we've got a lot of instances of the musical, and then we have a lot of films that are, are sort of loosely in the adventure fantasy genre. So a, a movie like Brave, which I, which I really loved, or Secret of Kells. I have to go there. No, Brandon. You should have stayed in your tower. Crumb Crow took my people. He took my mother. It takes everything. You will die. You know, this is a fantasy adventure that is executed through animation. And I think that the villains in these two modes, and there are other modes, but those are definitely the dominant ones in feature-length animation. I think the villains in the two modes are a little bit different. I think villains are often not what they are shaped like. In other words, Gertie's a puppy, not a dinosaur. Bugs is a wise-cracking grown-up comedian from the Catskills who looks like a bunny, right? So if we look especially at the musicals and we look at some of Disney's great villains, what they are in terms of body shape uh, or rather, what they what they are may be different than sort of what they function as, and I think that when we look, especially at the Disney films, because Disney makes films that are meant to be timeless, and they are meant to play very well to children or to those audiences that are permitted to continue to consume the things children consume, right? Because a woman can go see Disney movies into her twenties or thirties or forties. And that's okay. And guys, if you you do not want to be an adult man alone at a movie theater playing a Disney film, you'll wind up with like an eight-seat perimeter around you and people checking the local sex offender database. It's completely wrongheaded. But there is this idea, you know, these are these are gendered and aged forms. Most of Disney's great villains are in fact abusive parents. They may be, you know, they may be Jafar, they may be Scar, they may be Cruella de Vil, but what they almost invariably represent is they represent adult authority used against the interest of a child. Now, sometimes this is very overt, but most often it's cloaked, right? You get sent away to live with 
an uncle, an aunt. Think about the wicked stepmother. Why is the wicked stepmother a thing? A wicked stepmother is a thing because we assume that your mother doesn't hate you. And when this person enters your life and has the power that a mother has, but secretly hates you, that's the most profound kind of peril that a child can understand. Let her go. Not a chance, Titan. She's mine now. We made a deal. Daddy, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to. I <laughs> the idea that, like, a grown-up can use their grown-up stature and their grown-up authority and their grown-up physiognomy against you, that's repeated across the board in a lot of these Disney musicals. These are bad parents. These are bad grown-ups. So that, I think, I think their best villains are the ones who do this in a really grand way. Eddie also had some really insightful thoughts on the sea witch Ursula from The Little Mermaid, who was actually based on the famous real-life drag queen, Divine. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my black little heart. You came here for some excitement tonight, and that's just what you're going to get. I think Ursula in Little Mermaid is a terrific villain because she's transgressive in all kinds of ways. You're here because you have a thing for this human, this uh, prince fellow. Not that I blame you. He is quite a catch, isn't he? <laughs> right. She transgresses gender norms. She transgresses body norms. And she transgresses that most central dramatic transgression is she abuses the trust and vulnerability of children. My dear sweet child, that's what I do. It's what I live for, to help unfortunate merfolk like yourself. She is the witch in the gingerbread cottage who wants to fatten you up and cook you. And that is, I think, going to be repeated over and over again. The adventure films, those villains will tend to fall into genre categories. But the, the musicals, especially the family-oriented ones, it's a much more diverse landscape now, though, if you think about it. Animated films are so much more varied than they used to be, just because more people are, are making them. But by and large, since many animated films are made principally for children, we're going to see some variant of that primal childhood fear of being at the mercy of a, a wicked adult. The secret sauce, like what makes a great villain? If you find something or things about a villain that are other than just being bad. That's Disney legend and renowned animator Andreas Deja. You know, we had that with the Horn King in the Black Cauldron, I think. He was just evil, but he wasn't that interesting because there was not much else to him. Arise, my messengers of death. Our You have to have maybe a sidekick, uh, they often do. 
Wow, you didn't miss a shot, Gaston. You're the greatest hunter in the whole world. I know. No beast alive stands the chance against you. And no girl for that matter. It's true, Nafu. And I've got my sight set on that one. Or really fine things, uh, again, that make him interesting. In the case of uh, Gaston, he was just so full of himself. This whole thing about checking himself in the, in the mirror, you know, and just in love with himself. And that, that meant like he's entitled to get Belle. He doesn't even have to ask to marry him. He, he just states that he's going to marry her. You know? so, so this sort of arrogance, being, being in love with himself, really appealed to me. Were you in love with her, beast? Did you honestly think she'd want you when she had someone like me? Even though he was hard to draw because of the realism. You know, a, a handsome villain is harder to draw than an evil-looking villain like Jafar. And then in the case of Jafar, he was just power-hungry. He would do anything to be the most powerful creature in the whole world. Uh, so that was all about power. Face it, Jafar. You're still just second best. You're right. His power does exceed my own. But not for long. <laughs> the boy is crazy. And with Scar, it was more layered. There was more subtlety because he really had fun being bad. You know, he had a way with words and the, with the way he used his henchmen, the hyenas. We'll be prepared. For what? For the death of the king. Why, is he sick? No, fool, we're gonna kill him. You know, he, he just loved, he really enjoyed being evil. There's a whole song about that, you know, so, uh, and again, working with Jeremy Irons' voice, you just couldn't go wrong. I mean, I've said this before, the man can read the commissary menu and you want to animate that because it sounds so good. <laughs> it's, it's true. Andreas has a long list of characters that he's brought to life. He was the supervising animator for the character of Roger Rabbit, also Hercules and Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. But he has also created some of Disney's most famous villains of all time. He mentioned Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, Jafar from Aladdin, and Scar from The Lion King. And he was the supervising animator for all of those characters as well. He knows villains, which is sort of a wonderful irony because he is an incredibly warm and charming person. I asked him to explain a little bit about the role of a supervising animator at Disney and how that person has to harness the work of multiple people to steer one character through production. As a supervising animator, you not only are responsible for your own footage, which is the, really the, the core personality scenes, but you also have to supervise other animators who help you out because the footage is just too much for one person to animate. Uh, so on, on the villains, I usually had five other animators that I had to work with. So you uh, often end up during the week just helping them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then you can start thinking about your own scene for the week on Thursday and finish it on Friday. So it gets pretty crazy supervising and animating. I also asked him if he ever thought about the responsibility of adding to the Disney legacy of famous villains while he was working. Kinda, you try not to think about that because it is so in intimidating. If you go to the archives and you flip a scene from Cruella de Vil, you go like, oh, I'm never gonna be able to do something like that. The police are everywhere. I want the job done tonight. Are we gonna do it? Any way you like, poison them, drown them, bash them in the head. But you can't let that really hamper you and stop you. You know, you have to you have to put that aside, like you said in your question, and really 
try to give it all you've, you've got and then hope for the best. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these old villains or other characters, they are intimidating because they set the bar and develop such a high skill level uh, that we looked up to, all of us. Some creators, though, take a very different path for their villains. Because I am a huge Venture Brothers fan, and because that show is swimming with interesting villains, I could not wait to pester show creators Jackson Public and Doc Hammer to get their take on writing bad guys that aren't exactly what we've seen before. First up is Jackson Public. One of the things that I really love about your show is that the villains are so complex and they're really humanized and it's not sort of the the broad stroke bad guy Mm -hmm. what goes into that like what prompts you to write them that way (laughs) hammer's probably got a lot more of a nuanced take on this um but i mean it started just by like well we were making a comedy so everybody had to be just dumb and all too human you know our jokes are like oh it's a a crazy super science world, but everybody's really human and everybody's kind of a failure. And, um, you know, we were just humanizing everything for comedy's sake, but then little by little learned kind of the quality of that as just, you know, story of the human experience and, and fleshing these characters out more and more. I mean, we would just put our own dumb stuff on them, but you know, now we probably lean into it more, consciously because we do realize that we've got these like fleshed out people now and and so we can explore other crevices of their um sticky fingered humanity (laughs) right there's something really really wonderful about watching a villain go through like marital strife Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah we need to make some ground rules one no more of this i need my space you're crowding me crap fine whatever where were you hiding that list? Two. I'm not your number two. I'm your partner. Okay, I'll get you a crown or something. Anything else on that magic and probably moist list of yours? Yes, number three. This whole Dr. Venture thing is over. Yes, we kill him once and for all. And we shall make slaves of his sons in a lamp from the flesh of Brock Samson. No, I want you to give up this insane grudge you have with Dr. Venture once and for all. No way! Dr. Venture is my sworn enemy! Maleficent never had that. Yeah, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and the the realer and richer we make it, the more rewarding it is to us, and the more we get to vent about our own lives. And I think the better we are as writers. You know, like I said, it was like for a gag at first, and maybe um, you know, certainly there's enough lame mainstream like uh, Sunday newspaper comics about marital strife, but uh, you know, we never wanted to go in the cliche ways and we it's it's all about those like the specificity of these moments in your life and these this awkwardness of it all <laughs> you know our show isn't really about good guys and bad guys the the opening joke of the show is that oh what if Johnny Quest grew up and he was a failure and he's kind of a jerk so we were already we were you know we're already working with heroes who are super flawed and so, of course, the villains are. And aside from just being inept comedically, like you go, oh, well, then you start exploring like, well, what is the real difference? And that's when we get to episodes like where Dr. Henry Killinger is trying to groom Dr. Venture to admitting to himself that he's actually a villain because of his his moral compass seems more in line with the horrible people than, you know. But then we, two seasons later, turn around and go, well, there is a a truth and beauty and and there's a code to the villainy too 
As for Doc Hammer, villainy is something he feels really strongly about. I have an obsession with villains. And when I step back and look at the Venture Brothers, at least in its cultural impact, I want to believe that it's the organization of villains that I just don't think has been done before. And then showing villains as professionally bad people, but in their real life, they're regular people. Yeah, I mean, I think that that really is kind of the crux of what I want to talk to you about. Like, there are not a lot of instances where we get to see a villain sort of working through their marital strife while also trying to get their arch enemy. Yeah, or or discovering friendships right. inside of a, you know, giant cocoon of minions, which also the show deals with. Let me tell you something just professionally. That is a that that becomes very hard to do because when you're trying to write, it's good to have somebody that is bad and somebody that is good. You have a protagonist and an antagonist, and in our show, it's all protagonists. Right. There are no antagonists. <laughs> Kate, can you refrigerate my dinner in a ziploc? I have an arching tonight. It's a special one. Sure, lamb chop. You want the roll in there with it? No, no, it gets all mushy in the gravy. That equilibrium between the good guys and the bad guys, the way the lines are blurred on the Venture Brothers, is really part of that show's unique identity and appeal. Jackson elaborates. We reward the characters who do things for pure reasons, whichever side of the compass they're on, you know? It's why we killed Jonas Venture Jr., because he wouldn't play the game. You know, he wouldn't join up with the super science, super villain, play fighting cat and mouse thing. He thought it was ridiculous. And he went and made iPods and became a billionaire. So we killed him because he doesn't have any place in this like venture world. And we rewarded Dr. Girlfriend for being good at her job and for being no BS with, and not tolerating other people's BS. And we rewarded her idiot husband for just going, no, I just want to hate Dr. Venture. That's like, I don't, I'm not in this for the money. I just want to build these toys to hate this guy. And that's, that is the purity of comic book villainy in our world. This is, you know, we've developed this strange moral code over time that is, you know, very relative. <laughs> Hey, come on, man. Show a little respect, huh? Not today. We're not arching. I'm just picking up my rental car. Sorry for your loss. Hey, is it, is it cool if we use your electric fence for a jump? <sighs> All right, make it quick. Doc Hammer if that egalitarian approach to telling villains' stories was something that they did consciously. And as it turned out, it had more to do with problem-solving than any sort of ideological plan. What drives you to look at it that way? Like, did you feel that there was something lacking in other villains that you really wanted to explore? I, don't, I, don't, I never thought of the Venture Brothers as my chance to fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> it drove me to look at it because of a very real thing. I think I was working on Tag Failure It, mm-hmm. which is like episode five, six of uh, season one. And I was having a bunch of 
bad guys come into the venture compound. And it just struck me as, well, this is impossible. <laughs> so it was at that moment I go, they, there is an organization that these people have to deal with. This organization has very specific laws and bylaws and ways of conduct outside of what they do. So I stopped writing my script and just started working on the, I guess, the Guild of Calamitous Intent handbook. I started to think like, <laughs> right, let's figure this out. Like, how could they do this? And then I got back to the episode, which I really just wanted to make funny. I didn't want to backload it with all this knowledge, but I, I threw out some terminology and enough things that people could understand quickly that there is an organization that prevents mayhem from breaking out. Click takes one right in the brain, not equal. So they came up with this system. You have huge balls, a deadly partner, armed headquarters, a huge henchman army and a flying car. You're like a level nine or ten. If you just have a sidekick and enough change to ride the New Jersey path train, you're four. Guess who's a four? And then after doing that, I, well, I guess I fell in love with it. I, I, I liked it. Since he clearly feels so strongly about villains, I naturally wondered who Doc Hammer's formative villains were. Do you have a villain that you were inspired by as like a kid or an adult, like from other um, enterprises? I don't know. I mean, my understanding of heroes and villainy is, is more of like a handshake cultural agreement of it. And Jackson has a much more, you know, he comes from comic book roots and really cares about this kind of stuff. And I think it is that combination of my ignorance and his understanding that creates the Venture Brothers, which is the overarching strangeness of the Venture Brothers is that it, Jackson and I have written every episode. And it is really just us two piloting this thing. And when we write, we write singularly. He'll write a whole episode, I'll write a whole episode. Yet they seem to go together. That's kind of a magic trick, as far as I can tell. That two people can have the same outlook, the same voice, and write, you know, the same kind of thing. I find that insane. But uh, he has a different thing with uh, comics. I... I, I I didn't get them as a kid. I was really interested in, like, 19th century literature and, like, <laughs> poetry and stuff. So comic books, to me, when I was a kid, I would read them. I would go, you are not what the cover right. promised. You know what I mean? Yeah. This full color, in, inflamed world is so banal when I open up the pages. Like, I, I just don't care about any of this stuff, and it's a little confusing. It's just not for me. So I really wasn't a comic book guy. I was a, a literature guy. So my understanding of superheroes came from what I wanted them to be and they never were. Right. So, I, yeah. So I don't have a favorite superhero. I just have disappointment. Well, and it makes me wonder that since you mentioned that literature was really where it was at for you, if the reason that the villains that you create now are so much richer, if it's really because it comes like your sensibilities come from a, a literary background where things are a little more fleshed out normally. It is possible, Dr. Holly. I do not know. <laughs> Maybe I've stumbled upon a truth that I was not aware of. <laughs> Maybe. We never know.
When I was speaking with Andreas Deja, he told me a story about showing the early animations of the villainous lion Scar to the actor who gave Scar his voice, Jeremy Irons. Oh, I love Shere Khan from The Jungle Book. I think he's, uh, even though he's not that much in the movie, he comes in at the end. But when he comes onto the screen, he is a presence. That's, first of all, a graphic masterpiece, the way he looks and then the way he moves with that voice. Bravo, bravo. An extraordinary performance. And thank you for detaining my victim. Really impressive and intimidating by the, by the time I got to Scar because I thought there's already this big cat in this other Disney movie with a British voice who is sort of arrogant above it all. That's all kind of like Scar. So I tried to distinguish myself from Shere Khan by not looking at Jungle Book, instead looking at real lions, looking at footage of Jeremy Irons, also being in on the recording session, and really watch him and see what his face would do while he would be reading lines. And in the end, Scar ended up looking a little bit like Jeremy Irons. He does. Yeah. Yes. Well, forgive me for not leaping for joy. Bad back, you know. And he recognized himself too. I remember one time we had to record him. Uh, it was the last recording for the fight between Simba and Scar at the end of the movie. And he played theater in London, so we had to fly over there and record him there. And I had a video with me that I had animated of the sequence where Scar is setting Simba up on this rock before the stampede starts, you know. So I put it in, and because I had no idea what he even expected. He had, he had never done this. This was his first animation voice. And he looked at it, and he said, oh, my God, he looks like me. You know? And I thought, well, that was kind of intentional. Hopefully that's okay. And he just loved it. He absolutely loved it. But it's not always important that the character looks like the actor. Andreas also told me that villains are kind of the most fun characters to animate. Why do you think people love villains so much? Well, because they're the most interesting character, among the most interesting characters to animate. I would say the villains and the sidekicks, the, com- the comedic characters, because you can do stuff with them. The degree of realism is usually not that high. Villains are very expressive. They motivate the story. They want things their way. The good guys just want things back to normal and get married and have a happy life, you know. But villains want to stir things up and they're power hungry or whatever. So their motivation is very, very strong and really guides the story. So from that point of view, I think there's so much more you can do with them than than good guys where you have to just be the princess is just sitting down nicely and she says something nicely. She can be feisty, but you have to be so careful with the drawing and the the aesthetics of uh, a prince or a princess, but with the villains, you can go to town, roll up your sleeve, and just go go for it. From the audience perspective, why do you think? Like, do you think it's a translation of that? They just they they end up meatier. Yeah, and it's it's always been that way. Captain Hook is more interesting to do than Peter Pan. I mean, the animators would tell you that, or Wendy, or uh, Cruella is more interesting than Anita and Roger, because she's wild, you know, and that kind of stuff is just juicier and more rewarding in terms of acting, you know, as, as, as well as drawing, you know, for an animator. While we were talking, Andreas mentioned something really interesting about the freedom that animation offers animators to be anything they like. But that's the fun part of being an animator, that you can slip into uh, all these roles. An actor is limited by, and I'm not the first one to say this, but an actor is limited by his size and height and by his sex and all of that. And an animator, you can be a chicken, you can be a dinosaur, you can be a lion, and you can be Hercules. You can do all those things. 
While he was talking specifically about animators embracing those roles, I really think he tapped into something there that the audience experiences as well, and what makes villains so deliciously fun. While we aren't making the animation, when we watch a great villain on screen, we get to, for just a brief period of time, relish what it might be like to inhabit that character's world. As viewers, we get to shift our alliances as we watch, so we can simultaneously delight in a little immersion in darkness, which is what I mentioned at the top of the show, but we can still cheer for the heroes when the villains are defeated at the end. It's all part of the magic of animation, a beautiful escape that lets us explore who we are, both in alignment with and contrast to the characters that we see on screen. Thank you so much to all of my guests that were on the show today, and thank you to you, the listeners. This is the last regular episode of Drawn, although you might get a little extra something in the near future. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate all of you coming on this journey with me and getting the inside story on so many aspects of this thing we love, animation. Drawn was produced in cooperation between How Stuff Works and Cartoon Network. It was written and executive produced by me, Holly Fry. There was a small army of people making it amazing. Susan Shipsky from Cartoon Network was also an executive producer on the project. Noel Brown served as our supervising producer. Chandler Mays was our lead editor. Casey Pegram was our editor. And Kathleen Quillian served as assistant editor. None of this would sound so amazing without those guys. So give them a big thank you in your mind right now. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. We are also drawnpodcast.com as our website where you can find show notes featuring links to some of the projects that my guests have participated in. And you can also visit us across the spectrum of social media as Drawn Podcast. 